Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. All right, before we get deep into God's word this morning, I, I need to ask some really important questions. I mean, mowed your lawn yesterday. Okay, see, I, the reason this is important, because between now and Easter, there's going to be two significant weeks that are very, very frustrating on my part. Uh, as the weather gets nicer, as weeds and lawns begin to grow, as that desire to rototiller your garden gets going, and then planting those first spring whatevers, vegetables or, or uh, flowers, Here's what's going to happen at church. I want to both warn you because you might be the guilty person uh, or it's going to happen because the person sitting next to you, it will be a guilty thing. But the, probably on some two Sunday mornings between now and Easter service, there'll be 25 to 30% of you who will be sound asleep about end of service. It's going to happen. I just wanted to know how close we were to it today. Um, because I'd heard that many of you mowed the lawn yesterday and I grew a little concerned. You need to keep your thinking cap on. The second thing I want to I remind you of, um, though Mike has already said it and we talked about the, the trip to Israel, um, if, if you have any interest in that, I, we're, going to, we're going to have a meeting obviously next Sunday night, I think he made mention of it, uh, next Sunday night at 5 o'clock. And the goal is going to be this. We're going to cover two areas. Number one, what are we going to see? Where, where are we going to go on this? Everybody wants to know the itinerary itself, um, and you can look, begin to look it up on a map. But the second question that we all ask, and it often is the primary question, how safe is it? All right? And uh, many of your family and your friends uh, believe that your lives are in jeopardy because you're heading off to the nation of Israel. And the way that news is covered, it's at least a legitimate scare, though I do find it interesting that when I go down to Mexico, uh, the number one question that the Mexican people ask is, is it safe up there in America? So uh, it's it, everybody's perspective, everybody's understanding of news. And so we hope to go into some of those things and, and answer any questions that you might have. <laughs> Family, um, today in the book of Mark, we're in chapter 7, and it's going to be somewhat of a turn, but I want you to see where, where the disciples last week were tired. They, had, they, they hadn't had a chance of rest, but they'd also taken their eyes off Jesus. And it was a great reminder, I think, for us who have an intimacy with Christ, how easy it is to grow tired. All we have to do is take our eyes off the Lord. And yet we saw a community that was very interested in, in seeing Jesus Christ work in their lives. And man, they went off to get their family and their friends. And they knew that Christ could take care of their needs. Today we're going to see an attack. And Jesus Christ is going to show the community just how bankrupt their thinking process is. And family bankruptcy is probably one of the, the bigger scares that we have among the average person 
in life here. I don't know that there's anything personally that's more unnerving is when you go to the uh, when you go to your checkbook, when you go to your when you go to your savings, and you have that large bill that's due, and there's nothing there. Um, it, it's really quite unnerving. I think it, it makes for great times of prayer. But now, the worst is when you have multiple, multiple, multiple bills, and you're looking at an empty bank account. And the only thing that's a salvation or a protection for you is bankruptcy. Um, in 2007 through 2010, we had a pretty significant recession here in the Valley. And during that time, a man who doesn't attend the church called. He says, Pete, you and I know one another in the community. And that was true. He said, can I come in and talk to you? Sure. So as he came in and began to unpack his story, he was very wealthy. And the recession had just eaten away at all of his life savings and all of his investments. And he led a family of five and was so concerned for it. He said, Pete, I just don't know what to do. He then went on to say, he says, I've gone down to the, to the garage on three different occasions, loaded the bullets in my gun, and put the gun to my head. And I couldn't pull the trigger. And so we had a, a, a delightful time, and he and I would talk uh, for the next couple of months just so that we knew his spiritual and mental frame of mind uh, was moving in the right direction. And yet <clears throat> the graphic reality is he would talk and say that the bankruptcy was, was at least allowing him to consider taking himself into eternity, leaving his wife and children. What an awful feeling that is. Family, as, as I've grown in the ministry, and we've seen more and more people who've grown in the Lord, been a part of our church historically, and then walked away for one reason or another in their faith, I become more and more worried about spiritual bankruptcy. I don't know that I can think of anything worse than having a, a confidence in the bed of a dying individual that he's going to wake up into the arms of an everlasting Savior, Jesus Christ, to a home in heaven eternally. And because he had put all his trust and all his confidence in the wrong things, closed his eyes with confidence on this side of reality, and opened his eyes into the supernatural reality into the flames of hell itself. I can't imagine that moment of, of what that must feel like. But I will say it's telling. And so we come today in, in a very important time of Scripture, potentially the most devastating sermon that Jesus preaches in the entire ministry that he has. And if we have any application that we want to walk through today, if we have any confidence in anything other than the grace of God, it's going to leave all of us spiritually, eternally vulnerable. The plans that we have ultimately are bankrupt. Family, 
that's a really easy thing we'll see throughout the text of Scripture today, but I was raised by a denomination that in, in fairness, they, they preach grace. They preach grace. I, I remember responding to the story of the cross, but quickly things began to cloud the importance of my relationship with Jesus Christ because my relationship with Jesus Christ was founded on a whole bunch of other things. It was founded on how many times I went to church each week. Because in my denomination, four times was kind of considered, eh, that's what a real Christian goes to. You went to Sunday school, you went to Sunday morning. You went to su Sunday night, you went back on Wednesday night. And then you, you were less than a Christian. You might have known the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you didn't come four times. My family, it was even better. Not only did I go to Sunday school and church, I went to afternoon children's choir. After that, we had what was referred to as Bible training union. And after that, I went to the, scene, to the service. Family, I had five before I ever got into Monday. Then we hit Wednesday, and I was at Awana. Then we had opportunities to go visit, and my dad would often take us there. So uh, four times I would have thought was an easy week. And then it considered your dress what was very important on Sunday. God forbid that I'd ever show up in blue jeans. God forbid. If I didn't have slacks on, if I didn't have a tie on, I, I could not serve the Lord. When I say, God forbid, God forbid that I'd ever have my hair touch my ear or hang over my collar. Now, I found that to be very interesting because if you were bald and you still had a comb over, you could have hair that made Donald Trump's look insignificant. And that was okay. And in the wind, man, you could have had a ponytail hanging down the back. It was so long. But that was okay because you were covering something and I, my hair, I was now less than, less than a Christian because I looked like Ringo Starr. God forbid that a woman would go to church and have her nails painted. And if she was a real hussy, they were red. Now, some of you are nodding, but to be fair with, let's back away. Isn't that a horrible way to live life? Because all of a sudden, nothing matters about Jesus Christ. We have this incredible objective checklist. Your hearts could be as cold as an ice cube, but you're doing everything right that your denomination pushed. Family... Scripture has, is filled with examples where we misunderstand and it becomes easy to fall into these non-grace decision-making. So Romans would tell us that the meat-eaters and the vegetarians were arguing with one another as to who was more godly. Well, that one's easy, the meat-eaters. Family... Paul even goes so far to say that in the divisions of Corinth, he says, I'm so glad I baptized none of you. I don't want any of you to ever think I, you were baptized in my name. I don't want the confusion. 
And down through the ages, we've gone out of our way to make certain that the baptizer was never the issue, never to be important. It was the baptizee that was important, who was being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave grace. It is so easy to fall into this trap. And so we, we want to look at it first from the point of Jesus revealing the bankruptcy to the scribes and the Pharisees. The error of trusting in human ability to obey the old covenant and trusting traditions and legalisms and behaviors over having a proper heart. And how difficult is it to be from the outside to ultimately be able to look in and evaluate the heart of brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? So family, we're going to try to dive deep today into this, this idea of bankruptcy. And we're going to use financial terms, if you will, and I want you to notice as we begin reading this morning, we're going to look at first a wrong investment. They'd, they'd, they'd placed all their trust in the wrong thing. So we're not going to read all of it today. We're going to read verses 1 and 2, and then because of a long parenthesis, we're going to come to verse 5. So follow along as you will as I read. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples and the scribes Excuse me, why did your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with deviled hands? Family, the scribes and the Pharisees put their confidence in tradition. And the sad part is, is God always had the heart attitude in mind throughout all of the Bible. If I walked with you just for a moment... Adam and Eve would walk with God on the cool of the day. But what was the key part of the walk? They walked in harmony of thinking. They walked in loyalty and love with one another. They walked with an agreed-upon sense of what holiness is. That's what made the bond so wonderful. God reacted in a way of holiness... And Adam and Eve joined him in holiness. Then all of a sudden, Satan comes in and says, well, wait a second here. God's not giving you the full story. And where there was trust and camaraderie and agreement in the walk, all of a the sudden there is now a breach of protocol. They don't, they don't understand why God is doing what he's doing. So we're going to come to our own conclusion. We're not going to talk to God and ask him why. We're not going to confirm the state of our holiness. We're not going to ask him why we have this essential bond between us. We're just going to go do our own thing. Forget acting like that. And all of a sudden, that incredible privilege is lost because Adam and Eve wanted to do 
their own way, assuming that somehow Satan was giving them information more valuable than what their holy God and the walk was giving them each and every day. God always had that. That was even true in the Old Covenant. When you, when you think of all of the rules and all of the sacrifices of Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy, when, when you see all of those, against the backdrop of all of them, there was one concern, an agreed-upon heart, that when we walk together, what I am giving you from the position of Most High God is something that I'm giving you out of love, loyalty, to better you, to give you the, the flavor of life in its completeness and its fullness, to, to protect you from any chance of destroying what we have together. And so I want you to see Deuteronomy chapter 12, the hard attitude that God expected. He says, and now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So God always wanted of this heart attitude. It wasn't about traditions and rules and, and behaviors. True worship involves the whole person. Head, soul, or excuse me, heart, soul, and strength. Eternal identity or external identity alone was never acceptable. And family, Jesus made it clear from the very first chapter of Mark what his intentions were. It was not to look at the old covenant. It was to recognize that they were sinners. And he says, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news. Family, they'd had 2,000 years of what the old covenant was. And Jesus walks in and says, wait a second, you're a bunch of sinners. And by the way, I'm here. The kingdom's fulfilled. I'm here. God with us. The promise of Isaiah, I'm here. Repent and believe that I'm here to walk with you. I want that heart. I want you to believe who I am. I want you to believe that my prophetic statements are all true. Come and walk with me again. And family, understand Good news, or the gospel, has to come from a leader who can enforce the promised good news. All right? Forgive me. But if Ray Greb comes up and says, I got good news for you. You're going to drive a Bentley home tonight as soon as church is over. Well, understand, I know his bank account. And I know mine. He has no ability to supply what he just has told me. No, no way to do it. A, a leader, if he's going to say something that's good news, it's going to have an ability to has to be able to be accomplished. So Jesus comes in and says, I've got good news. I've got the gospel to give to you. And I'm basing this on who I am. I am the God-man of all eternity. 
Listen to me. So the scribes now come from Jerusalem either as enforcements. The, the, the Pharisees and the scribes of Galilee, <laughs> they can't hold up to Jesus' wisdom anymore. We need help. Send up somebody with a Ph.D. in Jerusalem. We can't do this. So either they're coming up as reinforcements or they see what's happening up in Galilee that Jesus is becoming more and more popular and they don't want that infection to spread down here in Jerusalem. So they're going to take a proactive stand and get up there and join in the attack. And hopefully they can quell this growing sense of popularity that Jesus is teaching and his healing ministry is accomplishing. And they're going to look for something to attack. And they see a chance to attack when the disciples are found eating food with unwashed hands. Now, even though the, the, your, your text gives you a little explanation in verses 3 and 4, let's walk, if you will, through history. Family, 500 years before Jesus, the Jews began to, a desire to codify, to help people understand. And maybe in the beginning it was done with an idea for clarity. But over 500 years, these commentaries that are written by one scribe or rabbi after another began to gain weight so that ultimately the oral tradition of the commentaries became equal to the work of Jesus, excuse me, the work of the Bible as inspired by God. And so the Bible and these words are on equal footing. And now with 500 years of built-in tradition against the 2,000 of the arrival of God's Word, the competition was such that they were equal. And the scribes assumed that to be a real Jew, to be really obedient, you had to obey the oral tradition equal to Scripture itself. Hand-washing was one of the significant ways. And you need to understand it was part of the, the whole equation. There was very strong identity of what to do it. I want you to understand that it's still going on today. This is a picture right outside the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. I want you to notice the size of the pitchers. Those are exactly designed to give you enough water you and I have gone into the washroom when a 10-year-old boy is washing his hands, right? I mean, they just go, and they, they've got enough water. They might just turn on the hose and step back like this and then close. They've, they've washed their hands, all right? So they prescribe exactly how much water. They prescribe how you have to wash your hands. You will begin to pour it over your, your entire hand, holding your fingertips up so that the clean now... The clean stays on top and it is drawn down to the bottom and falls. And so now your cleanliness and <clears throat> this amount of water must come with the idea that you're going to use the fist of one hand to clean the hand of the other and it's going to go all the way up to your wrist. If you don't cover your wrist, you are not clean and you have to then do the other hand with the fist 
and you're not clean. Understand what was 500 years old at the time of Christ is now 2,500 years old within the Jewish community. It still lives on. Its power is incredible. Now, the interesting thing was that this has nothing to do with hygiene. So those of you who are thinking, well, the Old Testament knew exactly what they were doing. No! Because this has nothing to do with hygiene. This is completely ceremonial. Completely ceremonial. Because Leviticus 22 is the only reference that we find for washing hands in a particular way because of uncleanness. They had brought this in to everyone within time. You would wash your hands if you've walked around town because the idea is, is you're going to become dirty and sinful because of the people that you brushed up against. So understand, you would become, you would become unclean if perchance you had touched an unclean animal. You brushed up. You would become unclean if you brushed up against a person who had brushed up against an unclean animal. So you were unclean if you touched a gen or if you brushed up against a Gentile. And with the, with the soldiers all around, you can see it happening. You could, you could become unclean if you touched up against a sinner. As we know, the tax collectors and sinners generically. You could be unclean if you, you touched if you touch people who are going through some sort of physical malady, you could become unclean. And family, now eating with unwashed hands meant potentially one of two judgments. Number one, you could have been judged by God himself. And one of the things that, that God would have judged and, and given you, a terrible trial, poverty, they wanted no part of it. They could be judged by God in, in a number of other things. They could be given a demon, and they began to worry about a demon who had the specific name of Shibta. And Shibta could attack you with unclean hands, and so you had to make certain that you were prepared ceremonially to stand up against the onslaught of being unclean because for them unclean came from the outside the scribes wanted a religious ritual ceremony rules and regulations and they are incensed that Jesus would allow his disciples to openly disregard a ritual they considered binding and so, family, I want you to see the, the, the religious leaders had no desire of following the God of the Old Testament. Their, their desire for the ceremony, the uh, desire for the outside was all that was significant to them. And I want you to see how that's a terribly wrong way to live life. It will never produce the kind of holiness that you and I would expect from the transformation given to us by the cross of Jesus Christ. It'll never accomplish it. 
It's a wrong investment. So I want you to see, not only is it a wrong investment, they're putting it all in the wrong bank. They're hoping that as they invest in a lifetime of service to God, that their lifetime will then be placed in the, in the proper institution. And that proper institution will then collect that investment, bringing about the ultimate desire of eternity with God on high. So family, I want you to notice the wrong bank. Jesus never answers their question. Their question is, is why, why don't the disciples wash their hands? He never answers a question. He just comes right on the attack, and he starts over again. And I want you to see the heart of attack. It's in verses 6 through 8. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. So family, immediately God, or Jesus takes them right back to the Old Testament, which is exactly where, where any Jewish argument should be taken. He goes back to the authority of the Bible and he reminds them that the prophet is holding Israel accountable for an outward performance with no heart loyalty. When they raise human commentary to equality with divinely given scriptures, they actually invalidate the real purpose and the spirit of the writing of the Bible. God's law is actually set aside in favor of human teaching. So they're obeying the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God. Now he gives them an example of Corbin. The idea of Corbin is not a bad thing. The idea is simply that we have a gift set aside for God. Certainly that's not a bad idea. We, we have many things in our own life as we think of our finances. Well, I am, some of us have prayed that our kids would be used uh, for whatever purpose God would have. And, and so to a degree, there's, there's an idea that your children are Corbin. That makes sense, doesn't it? So on one level, the idea of Corbin is not a bad thing. But Corbin has now been perverted after 500 years of commentary. Let me tell you how it would act. Imagine, if you will, that, that I owe Dave Hooper $1,000. Dave, I don't. It's an illustration. Okay? So imagine, if you will, I owe Dave $1,000, and Dave comes up to me and says, Pete, you owe me 1000 bucks." You know, that money, I, I, that entire debt I had planned to give to the Lord, it is Corbin. And the moment he tells me it is Corbin, all my other debts become secondary. I cannot pay another payment to anyone else until his $1,000 is taken care of. And he would go to the temple, and he would place a small gift. He would put $5 into the temple fund, now signifying that all the $1,000 is going to be set aside for the work of the Lord, even though he might use everything else for his own disposal. 
The debt is earmarked as his. No matter what other responsibilities I have, no matter what other life I have to, to do, I have to pay him back first. In which case now I cannot move. I cannot do anything but make certain. Because not only am I welching on a debt between Dave and I, I'm welching on a debt to God. And far be it for me to do that. And so family, all of a sudden, I'm not living a life in my community. I'm not obedient to anything in the community. Now imagine, if you will, the, the specific relationship that Jesus comes to. He says, you're doing that to your own parents. Now can you imagine, there was no, there was no governmental help back then. There was no, there was no Medicare. There was no Medicaid. There was, there was no service that would surprise and help in any way. It was you and I taking care of the generational needs from one generation to the next. We took care of our families. And a young family who's already struggling to get ahead looks down and says, wow, I can't buy this and I can't buy this and I can't get this and I can't get this. I'm declaring my funds Corbin. All right, all of my stuff. So if I buy a new stove, that stove is being used for God's glory. It's God's gift. It's God's stove. My new house, that's God's house. And so all of my giving now that I can use is for my disposal, my opportunity to spend any way that I want to do it. Mom and Dad, I'm sorry. You having problems? Everything belongs to God. I can't take care of you. All of a sudden... What the commandment that says, honor your father and mother is thrown out. You don't have to obey it because you're honoring God. Family, I would suggest to you the moment they're doing that, they're also disobeying the last commandment. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't desire all of those things. And so all of a sudden, the relationship that they could have had with God through adherence, first with a right heart attitude, and then doing those things that relate and create harmony with him are absolutely destroyed because the traditions of men become more important than the power of God's word. Forgive me, do you, do you ever do that on your own, in your own life? I'd encourage you sometime, have, an, have a discussion with, with your, your family or close friends. Do we ever do that? Have you ever looked down and said, you know, I do this for my kids. Dot, da, dot, da, dot, da, dot. Man, I have to pay for new shoes every time they're in a new sport. I have to do this. I, I have to buy equipment for them. I, I, now they're going to private school and they're going to college and I can't, oh my goodness. You know, honey, my, all of our giving to the Lord, the Lord knows that we're really investing in the lives of our children and, and we're helping them grow in the Lord. Do, do we ever do that kind of thing? Do we ever look down and say, oh, family night is so important. That I, you know, there's this, this wonderful idea, this wonderful expression of how to raise our children with a, a sense of priority and, and loyalty and teach traditions and truths, and I'm going to suppress because this is happening, and I know that it's vital for me to serve. I know it's vital for me to be there. I'm, I'm an example to others. 
and, and I don't want... I don't want my kids to understand or misunderstand the importance of grace, but this isn't... Do we ever do that kind of thing? And so we look today at the idea that the scribes and the Pharisees, they laid it down in the wrong bank. And I want to remind you today that any form of man-made traditions, rites, rituals, regulations, which minimize a relationship with Christ or diminish grace offered through the work of Christ destroys true worship or heartfelt obedience. Family, when the inside has not been trans transformed, any attempts of the outside are unavoidable hypocrisy. It's just as pervasive in Christendom, and don't ever forget it. Certainly, we can come to worship that's superficial. We're only coming because the outside demands that we are here. Family, we can have perfunctory prayers. We did so because we know other people are watching. We accomplished it because, well, it's prayer meeting night, or, you know, we, we, the elders always gather at 8 o'clock. I need to be there if I'm an elder then there's little desire on the inside to do what the outside seems to be demanding. Our lives can be legalistic, but I want you to understand in the, in the general denominations, we have to be careful also. Doctrines can be, can be manipulated to force behaviors and enforce certain behaviors. Salvation itself can be some, somewhat sacramental. You really show yourself to be a Christian, or God's grace supplied a percentage of your salvation, and you're going to prove that you really are saved by doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this, and all of a sudden the grace of Jesus Christ becomes something that's minimized. None of this helps us to heaven. If we ever think that it does so, we are investing in the wrong bank. I want you to notice thirdly, all of this, the wrong investment, the wrong bank, Jesus is going to come back and condemn them with the worst of the accusations. It's the wrong currency. Forgive me, but instead of using U.S. currency, they're playing with monopoly money. And they're thinking that monopoly money is going to do the right thing in giving the investments that will provide an eternity in heaven. So join with me. We're going to come to verse 18 and read verses 18 through 23. He says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Notice the parenthesis. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, slan uh, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. 
And so, family, I want you to understand, this is the most stunning part of the stunning sermon. And if you ever mark something, I, I, would, I, I think you'd be wise to mark this because this is ground zero for the Apostle Paul in Romans. This is ground zero for Hebrews and, and the writings here. This becomes ground zero. This is where they're going to get much of what you see the future in Galatians, in Ephesians, spreading out and accomplishing as we see the future church. But these words are powerful in their infancy. He is attacking their understanding of traditions as legalistic and disobedient. And he shows ultimately that the old covenant is symbolic. It is illustrative. And in and of itself, it will never purge the sin that exists in the heart of mankind. He's going to show them that internally they're sinful. You and I know this. We, we know Romans 3. But the reason that Paul could write this is Mark 7. So he writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and he goes back to Psalms to prove his point, none is righteous, no, not one. So family, we're already defiled from the inside. You and I would know that as a doctrine of depravity. It's not that we're as bad as we can be. It's just that we choose to walk in ways that are contrary to God's. No Jewish man or woman thought of themselves as sinners because unclean animals made them unclean. Not themselves. The Jewish nation died rather than to break such a rule. And so family, they would go back to these kosher laws. And in going to the kosher laws, they would see them as their identity. And if I could show you in history, during the Maccabean rebellion against Greece, Greece came down and under Antiochus Epiphanes, he wanted to destroy the culture. And so one of the things that he demanded of them that they eat pig. Maccabees, the history book, will tell us that one woman lost seven sons because she nor her children would consume any sort of pig product. And they met horrible death because eating meant they were sinful and they couldn't do it. This ritual of washing, we have, we, have, we have rabbis that have gone to prison and used the precious resource of water to wash their hands rather than to drink. Suffering, a death by dehydration. Their hearts and behaviors made them unclean. This is religion-changing, family. When you understand this, the foundation of the Old Covenant is shaken. With one sermon, Jesus declared sinfulness is within. And quickly, he, he lists 
12 sins. Now, understand, this isn't exhaustive in any way. But he lists 12 sins. Six are behaviors, and six are heart actions. And they don't demand a lot of study on our part, but understand, he, he lists sexual immorality. What he simply covers is this is a general umbrella of any sexual action which destroys a man-woman marital relationship. So family, any form from pornography to adultery, any breach that destroys the partnership of the understood holiness of a man and woman becomes wrong. Pre, post, in the mind, he condemns it all in one statement. A thief takes what isn't his without any regard to the owner. Murders and adultery seem to be pretty clear. Coveting is interesting. It is a behavior that loves luxury. Luxury at the expense of others. Wickedness is just the general term for all of the above. You are so selfish that you want your own things without the care of others. And I don't know why, but my mind went immediately to the Rolling Stones' first great hit. I can't get no satisfaction. Man, I want what everybody else has until I get it, and I'm not going to be happy. And so then he comes back to the core thinking that makes us do and behave with all of the above. Deceit. Sensuality simply means it has no rules. There's no restraint upon yourselves to take what you want. So as, as you meditate on your mind, your meditation runs to what you want without any consequence. Envy's an evil eye. <clears throat> you look around and you desire. Slander and pride seem self-evident. Finally, we have foolishness. Family, this is an idea that's so brainless, it defies an explanation. Have you ever sat and listened to someone share with you a story that they've just experientially went through? And when you're, the, the story is done, you look down and you simply can go, what? Say that again? Family, I, I, I'm an old youth pastor. I've been in ministry now 43 years. There's one young man, Greg. I have spent more time with that one young man than still anyone else after 43 years. I poured my life into him. I, I started knowing him as a seventh grader. I just loved him. Great personality. I saw him graduate. He disappeared from my life. At 21 years old, he got arrested on his 21st birthday. That's when I got a call. Hey, would you come and see me? Sure, Greg. I went to see, see him, and I said, hey, tell me what happened. What'd you do? He said, well, he said, a friend of mine, a friend of mine went to buy drugs. I said, yeah. He said, so I went with him. I said, yeah. He said, so we met a, we met a couple, a man and a woman, 
and they were going to sell us the drugs, we were going to pay for them, and then we were just going to go and continue to celebrate my 21st birthday. He says, okay. He says, all of a sudden, he says, I looked over, and my friend punches the man who he is making this drug deal. I said, yeah. I said, what'd you do? He said, I didn't know what to do. He says, okay, well, what'd you do? He says, I hit the girl. And he said, so, I said, so you beat up the girl, so both of you beat up somebody and then left. Well, yeah. Forgive me, but that's a picture of wickedness. So if you got one of those stories, you now understand what we're talking about. This is foolishness on its, uh, uh, at its core. You can't even explain why you sinned the way you sinned. Family, the solution for all of this, this solution for hypocrisy is repentance. And Paul is the one who comes to the heart of this by example. And he shows the emptiness of self-righteous external religion. He saw it as worthless. He set himself up and said, well, there's nobody like me. If I stand myself under the standards of the Old Testament law, I'm perfect. But then he could tell us this in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Family, we come to him by faith alone, being forgiven and transformed from the inside. We serve the Lord Much like the relationship of those of you who are married, or if you're single, you desire, some of you will desire marriage. But marriage is really based, the entire contract is based on two words, isn't it? There's only two words that become meaningful. All right? Your ring's not that important. You will fix it or lose it. Sometime. The prongs may, may loosen and you'll lose the diamond. But there's two words that mean everything. I do. I do. And for those of you who have a great marriage, you recognize that every day you get up and you have a choice. As, as, as we get older, stuff starts to fall apart, sag, fall off. We understand all of that, but we get up and we remember two words. I do. I do. And through time, those of you who have a great marriage recognize, I don't do what I do to impress her. I don't do what I do to impress him. I do because I'm just flat out in love with them. And you know, I don't like doing that. But she loves that I do that. Because I know there's a whole list of things that she does not want to do, but she does it on a daily basis. 
because I love her. And we walk together. We walk together. And it's a privilege to walk together. Jesus Christ, through his offer of salvation, invites us to come and walk with him. He says, if you take me, you love me, you proclaim I do to the work of the cross. And when we do that, he says, oh, he says, I have, I have expectations so that you reflect my holiness. And as you reflect my holiness, people see my holiness in and through you. And it's a partnership. It's wonderful. It's rich. And family, we get the better of the deals. He says, my yoke is easy. Don't ever forget, we yoke together with Jesus Christ. We partner with him. But he bears the bigger burden. He died on the cross for our sins. He stood before the Father and took all of our wrath. He identifies with us and our needs and our struggles, and he is ever present with us. He takes on the greater burden. Don't ever forget, we are partnered to him. There are, there are actions that reflect who we are as holy people before God. But those actions are never the priority. They merely reflect our love loyalty. Because there was a day that you and I put all of our stock in grace. We put all of our money in grace. Grace becomes the bank by which we have confidence that as we go from this moment of natural life into this moment of eternal life, we have confidence that we wake up and see the ever-spreading arms of a Savior waiting for us. Family, what a privilege it is to walk with a God who loves us that much. Father in heaven, I'd pray you'd be with us. Dear God, as we come out of last week, we don't want to be tired people. And dear God, sometimes our tiredness can't be abated. Our, our physical tiredness is going to be there, but I would ask that we see the love of Jesus Christ. That dear God, it becomes powerful and effective and inviting. Walk with us now, I pray. Dear God, may, may, may we find the tools by which we with excitement live out the wonderful two words that we gave to a Savior. I do. I do believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.